it's Chris, the Supply Chain Doctor and host of Supply Chain is Boring. Over the years, I've interviewed some of the brightest minds and successful leaders in the world of supply chain management. In May 2020, I sat down with Ken Ackerman to learn more about him and collect a little supply chain management history. After our discussion, Ken told me about a similar interview he had with Dr. James Stock many years prior and the related work Dr. Stock was doing. In November 2020, I was able to catch up with Dr. James Stock to learn about his work. As an academic in the field of transportation, logistics, and now what we call supply chain management, Jim was well-connected to many of the original academic thought leaders in this space. Jim did interviews with many of these original thought leaders and shared them with me. The list includes Ken Ackerman, Don Bowersox, James Haskett, Bud Lalonde, John Langley Jr., Tom Menser, Tom Spee, and Daniel Wren. To carry on the great work started by Dr. Jim Stock, I'm dusting off these interviews and bringing them to you on Supply Chain is Boring. Now, Don, changing course for just a moment, looking at uh, the history aspect, uh, other than the present time, what historical period or era would you like to have lived in? Where I'd like to really be able to live is in the decades right out ahead of us, because it's during those decades, say the next uh, 30 to 50 years, that we are going to really face the most challenging problems I think that we've ever faced in the history of civilization. I'd love to be part of that technology-rich environment that we have out in front of us because uh, people in our field are going to make a real difference. Mm -hmm. If you could meet any historical person uh, of the past or present, who would that be? And there could be more than one, perhaps. Yeah. I, um, boy, that's a tough question. There are many people, but I, I, I would like to be able to sit and talk to George Patton, uh, like we're talking right now, uh, because I think that the, the true story of Patton has never really been told, and uh, uh, there were certain characteristics of, uh, of his leadership style that. Uh, that I would enjoy pursuing further. I think he had most of the people fooled most of the time. But I've been intrigued by him. I've read a lot about him. And uh, uh, there are many other people, but you said one. Well, certainly Patton knew a lot of military history, which uh, did him well yeah. in his yeah, and uh, he, combats. Uh, and he had sort of a, a sense of, uh, of uh, commitment to to the images of achievement that he he was able to visualize and then feel almost a uh, an ordained right to proceed for them which to me uh, was a passion for that few people could deny the worst thing that ever happened was making the movie Patton because I think it told the wrong story about Patton how do you hope that people will remember you in the future as they look back upon the life of Don Bowersox, what will they remember about you? Well, I think for people that don't know me very well, what will come to mind will be the work that's been done in the evolution of physical distribution to logistics to supply chain. And I think they'll, uh, they'll see me in that context and uh, 
hopefully feel like that there's been a contribution made. For people that do know me, uh, I think they will, I hope they will remember me more for as a person who cared about a lot of things that weren't just things the, of my own best interest, but anybody that stays in academia for 40 years has got to like students mm. and like being around them and working with them. And I've just got some, some people that have done wonderful things in life that I have a small part in in their early development. And and I guess uh, that stands out high. And we like to think about the Ph.D. students. And, and there are some fantastic ones. You mentioned a few earlier. There are many others. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also the people that went in business. And there's also the people that that didn't go into supply chain uh, but went into other things and became physicians. And when you teach undergraduate, you teach a lot of people. And mm -hmm. and uh, I think I'd like to think those people remember me as somebody that, that made time most of the time. Now, we know that you didn't work all the time. You probably did other things. Uh, do you have some interest uh, in your spare time, hobbies, things that you did outside of uh, the workplace? Well, I, um, I have a really pathetic golf game, which I totally enjoy. And I think the fact that I enjoy it so much uh, actually makes it more pathetic as time goes on. Uh, so golf has been a lot of fun. I've been pretty active in sports. Uh, I like uh, attending sports events, and I'm uh, you know, a very uh, close follower of, uh, of specific teams and I've been a, I helped recruit and did a lot of work with Tom Izzo at the Michigan State basketball program, and I have a great admiration for that form of of true unselfish leadership that he he is able to to um, express with that team. And uh, so I'm very very interested in uh, how they're progressing. I read a lot. Uh, I uh, I'm not. I just can't get exciting, excited about browsing around the internet. And I'm still writing. And uh, I have, uh, believe it or not, given some thought to actually writing outside my field, and uh, have done some research on a, a story based in Australia, which uh, sometime might see the the light of day, which would be a novel. Okay. Uh, so we'll see. But it won't be called the precipice. I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> Although we wrote our version of that, Nick Lahouchek and I, we wrote uh, the title of the book is uh, Start Pulling Your Chain, yeah. Leading Responsive Supply Chain Transformation. Yeah. That book will be out in January. And as you were growing up and, uh, and really throughout your life, did religion have a, a place in your life and uh, an impact on you in any way? Sure, it really was. My parents... Uh, my mother was a Catholic, my father was a Protestant, so I uh, attended uh, uh, catechism classes and was raised uh, a Catholic and married a Protestant and left the Catholic Church and am now a member of the Presbyterian Church. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, my wife is very active in the church and, uh, and we are regular attendees and enjoy it. It's a very important part of life. Mm -hmm. It's moments of reflection. It's where you learn to be humble. Mm -hmm. 
And as you look back at your life, what do you think are the main lessons that you've learned throughout those 40 years, both in academia and then growing up before those 40 years began? Everything, every single thing you do impacts somebody in some way. You want to make those impacts as positive as you can, but you can't always control them. And so you've got to understand fairness. And that's where I think church can help you a great deal in religion. To understand that as you impact people, uh, be honest. Don't, uh, don't try to kid them. Don't try to persuade them. Uh, tell them the truth. And the truth may hurt, but, uh, but there are gentle ways to tell the truth and harsh ways. And uh, uh, I think just trying to, to, to keep everything as much as you can in the open and be an open person and laugh at yourself. Now, were there any turning points that uh, you can look back to in your life that you say, well, those were significant in terms of having a present or future impact on where I ended up or things that I did uh, personally and professionally? Well, clearly... Um when I didn't go to pharmacy school was a turning point. And uh, experiencing the, the joy of accomplishment in undergraduate school, going from sort of a solid C student to, uh, to uh, a couple of years on the dean's list and graduating with a high enough overall GPA to get into good graduate schools. Those were turning points. The Air Force was clearly a turning point mm -hmm. because of the reasons I expressed earlier and and the ability to carry forward some knowledge that I could apply in the next. Uh, um, I think uh, uh, in graduate school, the, the different decision points where I didn't go to this school but stayed at Michigan State uh, staying there and, and, and becoming a professor there, the, the sickness was a turning point. I think my second marriage was a turning point in realizing that that marriage really was was okay because we we did part friends and we do have two wonderful sons and they're doing well. And then another turning point was then finding someone that I'm totally happy with. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, well into many years of that marriage, and and uh, those were all turning points, and that we're still turning. Mm -hmm. You never stop hitting turning points in life. Now, those uh, 30 doctoral students that uh, you chaired, and obviously many others that uh, you were involved with, beyond just those that you uh, chaired the dissertations. What advice would you give recent PhDs in our discipline? Yeah. I think today's person coming out uh, had better reconfirm a commitment in their own minds to basic education. Because when I think back of the people I've known over the years that really made a difference, uh, they were all committed to being great teachers first mm -hmm. and researchers second. And uh, among the people that have accomplished the most, and uh, they're all really quite humble people. They don't really get as carried away with all the awards as, 
as they think about uh, how is Joe or Mary at some school doing. I mean, they really, people in education really have to love people and want to be in the business. Mm -hmm. There's nothing uh, less happy than a PhD who doesn't like to teach and doesn't like students. They're miserable people. And we've all worked with them. And so I would advise students to be sure you really want a career dedicated to giving and service. Because the pay, while adequate, is not overwhelming. The uh, challenges to get into to get uh, into things that take you away from your primary mission is overwhelming, and you have to constantly reconfirm why you're there. Which leads us into our, our next question. What do you believe the most significant uh, ways in which the marketplace has changed since you uh, entered the, the profession? Uh, and Have those changes been good or bad? <clears throat> well, um, I think the the uh, the most serious part of it has got to do with the age-old uh, uh, publisher-parish paradigm that uh, seems to surround academia. Uh, we must publish we must publish certain articles in certain journals that are peer-reviewed in order to progress in the profession. I, uh, while I was dean, I tried really hard to get a new category of uh, professorship established for PhD tenure track professors who were great teachers but mediocre researchers. We were able to get a professor of practice for people coming in from industry, but we were never able to get a professor of teaching. I'm not sure how to call it exactly that because everybody thinks every professor is a great teacher. Well, some of the greatest teachers I've known are users of research, not generators of research. Mm. And I think the profession has, uh, has gotten to the point where uh, we're getting a lot of uh, uh, attention to research that does not really generate new knowledge, but meets some test of... Uh, significance either statistically or shows a level of mathematical sophistication that doesn't have much to do with the discipline and gets published in journals that only academics read. And I think that uh, there's some good professors uh, who have taught for many years, many people that have gone on for successful businesses that don't get their fair recognition in the business schools because they didn't get their, quote, five articles a year for three consecutive years to make the next academic rank. And that, that really bothers me tremendously. Now some specific questions, Don, uh, based upon your experience. You were one of the founders of the uh, Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals, then called the National Council of Physical Distribution Management. How did that uh, group get together? How was the organization Founded, and did you envision that that small meeting that you had, founding the organization, would develop into what CSEMP is today in 2007? Well, clearly I didn't, and uh, but actually it's been longer than 40 years because uh, that really occurred back before I actually joined Michigan State full time. Uh, that that occurred uh, during the length of time that 
when I was in New York with the Railway Express agencies. The early the early thing was it was almost like uh, uh, an evangelistic effort. I remember Ed Smikey and I sitting in the lobby of the Panlin Hotel in Grand Rapids, Michigan, waiting to catch the traffic manager of a big chemical company coming back in after his night out to dinner and stuff to see if we could get him to come over to the campus and speak. And I remember going down to meet Grover Plowman, who was one of the real early industrial pioneers, and Bruce Riggs, uh, you know, both gentlemen are deceased now, but uh, and talking about this concept and being asked to speak at Delta New Alpha in New York and the New York Traffic Club to talk about this new thing that our book was about. It was, uh, the book came out in the early 60s and it was uh, uh, sort of gather together anybody you could. And finally the AMA agreed to do a seminar on the subject at Saranac Lake. And all of us headed to Saranac Lake and it was flying out of there waiting in the airport after the, the meeting of the American Management Association uh, that the 13 of us that became founders decided sitting at the airport that we needed to formalize something. Yeah. And there were two academics in the group, Ed Smikey and myself, and, and the others were all practitioners. And we agreed to uh, have another meeting. And we had a meeting in St. Louis, and then later in the year we formed the organization. And the first two years maybe three, we had two meetings a year and we all had them all at the Kellogg Center at Michigan State because we talked the university into a, to allowing us to use the room without charge and and uh, slowly other people, by the time we actually founded the organization we were starting to expand and, mm -hmm. and um, we didn't have an end game and we, uh, we just were trying to, to get a forum and get legitimacy in our own institutions. Uh, it worked slowly but surely, but over four decades, it's become uh, quite a global force. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now, we've talked about uh, being a co-author on the earliest uh, physical distribution book. Um, and a question related, you, you mentioned it was difficult to get a publisher. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that process, uh, because there were no books, obviously, at that time. Yeah, and there were no so classes. <laughs> yeah, there was no history of sales. No, um, no. No competitors, no history of sales, no classes, except ours at Michigan State. And we went to all the publishing companies, and we were turned down by everyone, except one guy that that uh, was with uh, Macmillan, and he... Uh, he was interested and he got sold and he got turned down I believe it was two or three times and the fourth time they finally agreed to to publish the first book and we'd convinced them that it would sell uh, uh, great in the uh, business market so they did few people know this they actually did two different uh, cover colors mm. and they had a little jacket on it and the first the first one, one was in blue with silver print and one was in red. So that was the difference between the academic edition and the, and the business edition. It, uh, when we reprinted, when the book was, uh, 
was done the second time, uh, uh, all that was dropped. Uh, for physical distribution management, I believe, was done two times, and then we moved to logistics management, and and that was done five times, I believe, and then we, the new one is now in its second, and soon we're working uh, next year, we we'll start on the third edition of supply chain logistics management. So it's lived all those years. Shame. Uh, now, having been a textbook writer myself, it's a lifelong and it's almost constant yeah, yeah, yeah. revision but process. And we'd have probably done better if you hadn't written that competitive book. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think you got into textbook writing? Because you've done a number of yeah. books over the years, yeah, uh, as well as a number of articles. Uh, but oftentimes, academics typically stay with uh, article writing as opposed to getting into textbooks. Yeah. First off, when um, when we wrote the first book, it was still considered academically respectable to write textbooks. Mm -hmm. uh, so to have a textbook in a new area was considered especially good. So I mean we, we got a lot of academic credit for writing that book. Our school was behind the initiative and therefore it did us a lot of good. Now I've actually written one book a lot of times as opposed to a lot of books. Uh, if you look at almost all my other books, except the Stout Taylor one edition that I collaborated on, look at all the other books, they're research books. They're books that are not textbooks, but books that report research that we did at Michigan State under various grants. And as you look at the profession, who do you believe, and there could be more than one person, excluding yourself, who's made the most significant contributions to the profession? both in logistics and supply chain management, and why did you pick them? Well, that's, uh, that's a tough question, Jim. I don't know how you've done generally with that when you ask people because it seems like no matter what you say, you're going to make somebody very unhappy. Uh, the uh, uh, That's why you can name more than one. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, focusing on the academics uh, for just a, a few moments, uh, I would have to say uh, uh, Jim Heskett, you know, Bud Lalonde. Uh, I think uh, Doug Lambert and you made a major contribution in the field as you as you came along later and took it to another level. Um, and then in your generation, there'd be several others going back to the earlier. I think of a person a lot of people don't remember working hard in the field, Carl Rubenthal. Mm -hmm. uh, he he did mm -hmm. some. Uh, Ernie Williams at Columbia, who didn't write much, but opened a forum for many of us to talk. Arden House to very senior executives. Uh, most people don't know that Grover Plowman was uh, a PhD and that he, while he was at U.S. Steel, opened the doors for a lot of things to happen. Uh, unfortunately, I could just go on naming people. I don't think individuals alone have built uh, uh, what we have to work with today. I think it's been a contribution of many, many different people. Mm -hmm. uh, and more are rolling through my mind, but uh, the further you go, the more you're going to not 
Okay, confident. But all those people I did mention, and I'm sure there's someone else, uh, uh, all built on those things that Mossman and Smikey were first first developing. And you know, if you think back at those two guys, they probably understood a lot that they never got a chance to say because they didn't have an audience to speak to. But now you talked very early and and have mentioned this a few times in terms of living in the future in the next 30 to 50 years yeah. because of the discipline and its impact. Uh, uh, what do you think the future is of supply chain management? What's on the horizon for the discipline? Uh, we have, have a, absolutely no excuse about a lack of technology. You know, for years we worried about the fact technology was always trailing what we felt we needed. If we didn't get any new technology for 10 years, we couldn't really fully deploy what's out there now, and yet new technology keeps coming. But this technology gives us an opportunity to change the time context. Instead of doing everything in anticipation of and forecasting, we're dealing in a connected world with uh, global optic fiber connectivity. And we're in this, while this introduces many new great things, it also magnifies a lot of problems we have. Um, I'll give you one example. We have societies contributing actively to global commerce today that did, 10 years ago didn't have electricity, didn't know there was an external world. They're also contributing to deterioration of the environment now you know, because they're living in a style of life that has become characteristic. And uh, uh, I think we have the opportunity if we are realistic about our problems to exploit connectivity in a way that can eliminate tremendous amounts of waste. Well, it sounds like, as uh, most of us feel, have been in the profession for some time, we'd love to be uh, know what we know now but be as young as we were when we got our PhDs. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I think that's a great way to sum it up. I might just qualify a little bit and say that most of what we know now is obsolete. <laughs> so we we can't rest our laurels too much on on what we've learned, but what we got to keep learning. Now, when you think of the profession today of supply chain management, what's the single most important issue facing supply chain academics, and then the most important issue facing supply chain practitioners? Um, I think it's larger than the the academics and the practitioners. I think it's got a lot to do with. Uh, um, realizing that only a fraction of the world's population is enjoying the standard of living that's possible in, in this day and age and that people cannot possibly be content knowing that they are the have-nots and living with poverty and sickness, disease. And I think that, uh, that we, we truly have to tackle the problems of the planet, you know, first with making sure that people that are living there can live in harmony by being properly taken care of, and second, by taking care of the planet. Now, it's interesting, you know, being in a marketing department in combination with logistics and now supply chain management, uh, 
Think back to Philip Kotler making a reputation uh, based upon uh, several articles, but the one that he's probably most famous for is broadening the concept of marketing. Uh-huh. Uh, do you think it's time for an academic article on broadening the concept of supply chain management? Uh, well, I think quite clearly uh, that article might not be well received, but it's but it's timely. We have to start start scoping. Uh, what might be before we can change what is, mm-hmm. and I think uh, yes, I think that uh, in uh, in the very last chapter of this the new book, uh, we we actually are taking on some of the or at least teeing up the issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, personally, do you think um, as academics we have a definition of supply chain management today? Uh, I don't think we have the final or or uh, terminal definition of supply chain. It's expanded so significantly uh, over the years. Um, uh, I think it will continue to expand as we get more insight. I think the thing that's driving the discipline right now more than any other thing is the realization that that integrative management across the process as opposed to within a function mm-hmm. uh, does truly have uh, synergistic results and that we waste so many resources worrying about performing a function and we don't understand the trade-offs. While some of these are very old thoughts, I believe that the information capability of today is beginning to put a new, a new flavor on them in that... Uh, that uh, that's a powerful concept, mm-hmm. and, and particularly collaboration between uh, organizations, independent organizations in the supply chain. Uh, okay. And then our final question, what do you think will be the two or perhaps three most significant future developments impacting logistics and supply chain management in the future? An internet which is fundamentally for business and research and not a social networking environment, uh, one that is able to uh, to uh, provide much more security, allow us to safely move um, data and convert it into information while it's being moved. Two, I do think that we will make advancements in nanotechnology. Nano being very small, the technology of composition. And uh, so uh, I've coined the word nanogenome. If we didn't think we could chart the human DNA, and uh, within months later, we can, as one author puts it, download a, how to build a human body from the Internet. Well, I think we will learn how to decompose components of products, similar to the way we've taken films to and pictures and and videos and everything to a media that we can transmit. I don't think we will eliminate physical substance, but I think we will learn miniaturization in the extent that we're going to be able to increase the density and reduce the size of products. So what we could put on a trailer today, we could put five times as much on in the future with less weight and uh, more value. So I think that's going to be a, a major, major trend. 
I think that uh, we're going to have uh, a significant reforming of antitrust laws, that we're going to learn that collaboration is not bad, and that people can do certain things extremely well and other things not very well at all, and there's no reason why we can't link together uh, organizations of people that transcend different ownerships. Uh, well, Don, I appreciate your insights and comments, and we've only touched upon uh, your breadth of, and depth of experiences, but hopefully through our conversations, uh, as we mentioned in introducing mm -hmm. this video, uh, people will see uh, a bit more of Don Bowersox and who he is and was and why he did some of the things he did. And throughout the, uh, all of these uh, interviews that we'll do, folks hopefully will get uh, a vision for what has been, what is now, and what will be in the future. So thank you for your time. Well, thank you for the effort you're making, Jim. Supply Chain is Boring is part of the Supply Chain Now Network, the voice of supply chain. Interested in sponsoring this show or others to help you get your message out? Send a note to chris at supplychainnow.com. We can also help with world-class supply chain education and certification workshops for you or your team. Thanks for listening. And remember, supply chain is boring.